Hey Dwarf Hope Northeast, it's Cameron, and uh, we had originally planned for this series to be four weeks, but uh, given just kind of how informational some of it's felt, we, we thought uh, it felt right to try to tack on a, a fifth sermon that can kind of land the plane in a bit of a more pastoral and direct way. Um, but just want to give you a heads up that after, after this week, we'll be moving on from this particular series about race and justice and ethnicity. Um, and we're going to do a short, probably seven week series through the prophet Micah from the old Testament. Uh, and then, um, sometime early in the new year, we're planning on jumping into a longer study through the gospel of Mark. So, uh, just to give you a heads up, those are some things that are kind of on the way for us in terms of Sunday teaching. Um, but this is our final message in this race series, kind of a wrap up. And um, we've said it before, uh, but this is not, you know, intended to be the final word on these things. As we've, I think, established, this is a significant theme throughout the scriptures and we'll continue to talk about it. Um, but we do hope that this has been something that kind of prepares the soil of our church for uh, just kind of the long haul in terms of um, kind of a basic framework for thinking through these things and understanding the ways in which they're really important to the heart and mind of God um, and how we can respond as a community moving forward. So I hope it's been encouraging. Um, yeah, so um, as we mentioned before, uh, because race, as we understand it, is kind of a modern social construct, uh, the Bible doesn't directly address race, at least not in the terms we're used to. Um, but there are all kinds of biblical teachings woven throughout the entire Bible storyline that speak speak to it, nonetheless. Um, and specifically, when we think of the sin of racism, um, there's a ton of angles in the Bible from which we could do that. We, we could talk about it as the failure to properly honor the image of God and a person of another race or ethnicity. We could talk about a, a privileged overlooking of the presence and needs of someone of another race or ethnicity. Um, we could think of it as, as committing one of the many injustices that scriptures speaks of against, um, speaks out against because of someone's particular race or ethnicity um, and on and on and on. Any of these could rightly be called sins of racism um, to translate it into our language. Uh, but probably the, the, the simplest and best biblical category for understanding racism as sin is probably to nest it under the, the idea of the sin of partiality or the sin of favoritism. Did you know that partiality or favoritism is sin, is directly called out as sin in the scriptures? Um, and similarly, we could turn numerous places in the Bible to understand what this sin is and why God cares about it, but we're going to focus on James chapter 2, 1 through 13, which you've already had read for you. Um, so let's just jump in. I, I want to take it section by section here, um, beginning in verse one, where, where James gives us a command and then an example, uh, to sort of apply that command. So he says, my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And the, the word order of verse one in Greek reads this way, not in partiality, hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ of glory. 
So this, this command is, is about the way in which you hold to the faith in Christ. Um, not uh, in that way specifically is the way not characterized by partiality or favoritism. So what is partiality as, as it would come to James's mind? Well, the Greek word, I still have trouble pronouncing it, uh, prosopolympsiais. Yeah, that's, that's a little off. Um, but it, it reads literally as receiving the face. Um, so, so commentator Douglas Moose says it means making judgments about people based on external appearance. It's giving preference based on superficial or external factors or worldly advantages. And so the sin of partiality um, could involve making judgments on perceived wealth, as is the example James is going to get into, um, or certainly physical traits like skin color or things that comport with our modern category of race. In fact, since the invention of race, in the sense we talked about the first week of the series, race's primary function has been to separate groups of people for the expressed purpose of expressing partiality. Um, in terms of who can and can't be enslaved, uh, who can and can't live where, who can and can't be employed by whom, who can and can't vote, who can and can't receive just treatment under the law, and so on and so forth. And so in discussing the sin of partiality or favoritism, um, we're talking about a bigger category of sins, which racism is an all too common expression of, if that makes sense. And note that the problem here is in, quote, the paying attention to the rich man and giving him the good place to sit while presumably not paying attention to the poor man, giving him a subpar place to sit. And one of the issues here is that this is exactly operating along the world's values and in contradiction to the counterculture values of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus, where specifically time and time again, he says, in my kingdom, the first shall be last. To, to do what James is describing is to exactly reverse the value system of the kingdom. And James compares it at verse 4 uh, to, to being like a judge with evil thoughts, a compromised judge, unable to uh, judge correctly or impartially or justly. Um, so it's a big deal. Um, and as with like so many of the commands in scripture, in the scriptures, the command is deeply rooted in God's character. And so rejecting partiality is an important part of conforming our character to his or of demonstrating to the world what he is like. Like listen to how God is described elsewhere. Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Luke 15, 1 through 2, just an example of Jesus being impartial in this sense. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus criticized for his lack of partiality. And then Romans 2, 9 through 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. 
the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Um, so if that's, if that's the setup, that's the command, partiality should not characterize the way you hold your faith in Jesus. For the rest of this passage, he's going to give us three reasons why. He has to defend this. And so the first reason is that it violates God's honoring of the poor. Verses 5 through 6, part A. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. James appeals to the character and nature of God as the one who has given special attention to the poor, who has given them royal status as heirs in his kingdom. And this immediately raises a question about the nature of partiality. So clearly, um, God's special treatment of the poor, those in special need of help and comfort, is not in violation of the sin of partiality principle. And I like, I like the way Alec Moitier puts it in his commentary. He says, It would not be showing partiality, for example, to offer the last remaining seat to an elderly person and to invite a young person arriving simultaneously to sit, stand or sit on the floor. The elderly command respect and considerate attention. Um, there are all kinds of ways in which we can and must give special care and support to certain people, especially those most likely to be neglected uh, and those in the greatest need. That is simply a mirror of the heart of God um, who sent his son to save those who couldn't save themselves, to supply righteousness to those with none of their own, um, to bring spiritual riches to those who are spiritually impoverished, to make last first in his kingdom. That's interwoven deeply in just who he is. And so James implies that believers should share this heart that God has toward the poor. Treating the rich better than the poor is a rejection of his kingdom values. So I, there's a question here. It's a hypothetical one. I just want to throw it out there, though. But is can Christians find themselves guilty of ignoring God's heart for the oppressed in our midst? Can they? Let's keep going. Reason number two James gives is that it, it betrays a self-benefiting mentality. This is the second part of verse six and verse seven. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And look, James isn't necessarily, he's definitely not accusing all rich people of oppressing or of suing or of blaspheming. But he's pointing out that this was what was typical. Their own experiences in this community should have made them skeptical of showing partiality toward the rich, is, is his point. But in this is an implied question, which is why on earth would you be making special accommodations for these folks, given how they've treated you in the past, unless you're in it for yourself in some way? It sounds like um, some of the Christians that James is writing to were hoping that privileging the rich who visited their community would allow them to gain special favor or status or into the in-group or whatever. They were likely doing this uh, to benefit themselves. It wasn't an act of selflessness, selfless deference, most likely. It was an act of selfishness to try to get in good with those who had power. And so this raises our second question. Again, hypothetical. Can Christians be tempted 
to privilege certain groups, racial groups even, especially our own, to protect ways in which we personally benefit. Just leave that there. And we move on to reason number three in James, which is that this violates the command to love neighbor, verses 8 through 13. He says, look, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. So the opposite, James is saying, of, of this, this kind of partiality is in keeping the great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which, of course, doesn't qualify which neighbors we are to love. Uh, your, your neighbor is anyone that you see. Anyone that you come into contact with is your neighbor. And you're to love them. Um, showing partiality clearly violates the great commandment Jesus has given us. And re- remember that Jesus said that, that on truly loving God and people, quote, depend all the law and the prophets. Were we able to take God's love commands seriously and to apply them to every relationship we have, we'd never have these issues of partiality or or racial partiality. To have them is to violate the central command that Jesus has left us with. But it's interesting, again, to note that it seems like James is anticipating that his readers are not going to take what he's saying very seriously. Do you see that? So he spends the next three verses having to make the case that this sin, or really any sin, makes one guilty of violating the whole of God's law. And I don't know that he'd be having to make this case if he wasn't assuming they were going to already have this attitude of, ah, this this sin isn't that big of a deal or whatever. Um, Isn't it amazing how even in the first century, people had a hard time understanding the weight and significance of partiality. Um, It's one that is easy to minimize easy to forget about, very easy to justify. And it has been. And so this raises a third question. Can Christians find themselves minimizing or justifying sins of racial partiality as not that big of a deal, even though they're in direct violation of the greatest commandment? Well, James ends this section, these few verses, uh, reminding his readers to live in light of the fact that they too are going to face judgment one day. And, And not only that, but the gracious reminder that his grace and mercy overcomes judgment for those in Christ. And so should his mercy in us overcome our superficial, partial judgments as we relate to other people. This is powerful, powerful stuff. Um, and so that's, that's James's discussion of the sin of partiality. Um, he, he, he makes a powerful case that this really matters. He gives us three good reasons why it matters, even though he seems to suspect people are going to push back on the, the importance of it. Um, but 
I'm guessing most of us on the surface are hear this and like, ah, okay, yeah, sin of partiality, that makes sense. Try to treat everybody equal, whatever. Um, but I, I want to move from here to think briefly about how sins generally and, and the sin of racial partiality in particular, um, how they work themselves out actually in the world and in practice. Uh, because I see two major temptations or ditches um, that, that we can fall into when thinking through issues of how sin is expressed in the world, um, and specifically racial sin. And the two ditches, if you tip off the road into one or the other, are first the, the conservative ditch, the conservative temptation. And I, I see this as, as kind of that, the, the impulse to reduce all sin to sort of isolated personal instances. And so in the racism conversation, this can take the form of, of kind of limiting the idea of racism to just, as George Yancey says, quote, um, or as he describes it, this isn't his view, quote, something overt that can be done only by one individual to another. Or, or sometimes it pins the unfortunate circumstances facing many racial groups exclusively on their own individual sinful choices. It, so in short, everything gets boiled down again, to isolated personal instances of, of sin. Um, on the flip side, the other ditch, I think, is, is the ditch that progressives are more likely to fall into, which is the temptation to reduce the vast majority of sin um, to uh, systemic institutional forces beyond the control of any individual's. And so often on this view, racial disparities of, of any kind are almost exclusively the result of, of sort of racist power structures embedded deeply in our uh, social environments. Um, I have a feeling you all know what I'm going to do here. <laughs> uh, I'm going to suggest that the biblical reality, uh, the, the picture that the Bible paints, that God paints, is far more complex. And, and you know, we're going to Describe it, and you can either uh, see if it comport. You can judge for yourself if it comports to reality. I say that it does powerfully. The biblical reality is more complex, and I think it takes a both slash and slash neither approach to these political categories. Like the Bible affirms, and we've talked about this before, that rebellion against God. Uh, another way to talk about sin, rebellion against God is pervasive and insidious. And, and it finds expression in, to paraphrase Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so I'd like to talk about uh, these dimensions of sinful influence where the sin of racism can and does express itself, as can any sin. So first is the devil. Um, this is to, to, argue, to point out that the Bible claims, and I hope you believe this, that there are real personal spiritual beings set against God and his purposes, seeking to undermine the advancement of God's kingdom and keep as many people out of it as possible. Of course, if a major theme of the story that God is telling, uh, you know, throughout human history is about the amazing reconciliation and unity of, of a diverse people from every tribe, tongue, and nation coming together around Christ then Satan and his associates would love nothing more than to see discord and violence and subjugation and brokenness and mistreatment and on and on and on and on get injected into those relationships to harm that unity. Um, so racial strife then 
and racial injustice and racial partiality, they find part of their origin, at least, in uh, spiritual beings rebelling against God, including Satan and his demons, exerting their influence on us in the world, tempting us into this kind of division. Uh, that's the devil. Um, the second we'll talk about is the flesh. So the Bible speaks about the pervasive sinfulness of human nature apart from Christ. And when it does so, it often uses this image of the flesh. And uh, a few ways to talk about that. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or 1 John 1.8 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So everyone is touched by this. Everyone is a carrier of the flesh, so to speak. Um, and then even Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19, that out of the heart comes evil thoughts. So we ourselves personally, you and me, certainly me, um, we are also originating sources of all kinds of sin, um, including racism. So we, we don't need demonic influence necessarily. It's there. But if the, de- if the devil didn't exist, we would still be plenty source uh, for the creation of, of these kinds of sins of partiality like racism. We don't need demonic influence to show partiality, bias, bigotry, prejudice, or uncaring indifference. We are fully capable of producing them ourselves. And so direct personal sin originating in us and being executed by us, uh, both kinds we're conscious of and kinds we're not conscious of, um, these are also to blame for the presence of racism in God's good world. It's not just the devil, it's also the flesh. And then third, the category is the world. And this is something that came up a few times in our uh, First John series. But um, the world can be thought of, when, when the biblical authors talk about it in this way, in this sort of negative sense, it can be thought of as the collection of human ideas and values and habits and systems that exist apart from allegiance to God, and therefore they perpetuate evil. So the world is influenced by the sources of sin we've just mentioned. Uh, individual people and uh, the spiritual powers, they influence the world. Um, but to borrow popular terminology, I, I think the biblical concept of the world can be thought of as producing systemic sin, including systemic racism. And that's a big category. It's debated. What does it mean? What's included in it? What isn't? I want to just put forward two uh, examples um, of, of that kind of clarify, if we take the big category of systemic sin, we can get two subcategories. One is institutional sin. And that is, uh, I think, defined as a culture or even particular policies within a system or institution from as big as, say, the federal government to a police department to a family to a group of friends to a business, uh, what, whatever the system is, um, it's a culture or policies within that system that enables or protects or incentivizes sin in and toward people, um, either by someone's nefarious intention, like I, I'm going to do this and I'm going to create this structure to do this, or um, unintentionally. Um, we can think of examples like redlining, um, uh, to, to use an American history example, um, and, and the wholesale refusal by the U.S. government for decades to issue affordable FHA home loans to black people if they were wanting to purchase a home in a largely white neighborhood. 
um, individual loan officers in the system could have been personally motivated by overt racism um, or just by a simple desire to honor policy and do their job and, you know, protect protect the property value of, of the of the people in those neighborhoods they're refusing to give loans for. Whatever. It's not that every person necessarily had racist intent in that situation, but nonetheless, uh, the system produced a lot of racial injustice. Um, So that's institutional sin. There's one example of it. Uh, The other one is, is just the effects of historical sin. And so what I mean is the legacy of harm from sins committed in the past that continues to produce harmful effects today. So think of the lingering effects of slavery and Jim Crow in our country, which destroyed family connections, which kept people um, from building uh, and passing on wealth generationally, which kept people in separate and unequal educational environments. And these are to only scratch the surface. Um, Sins whose consequences don't limit themselves to the time when they first occurred but they have generational effects that we're still feeling today. Um, And so both this institutional sin and the effects of historical sin, they can both exert themselves without anyone making a deliberate conscious choice to show partiality or to otherwise sin against an individual or a group. Uh, And that's, that's a huge part of what the biblical authors mean when they talk about the world and its influence on us something that perpetuates and enables and incentivizes sin, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, Just to give another clear example, um, because I think it's helpful to run all kinds of different sins through this matrix here, but let's talk about pornography. Like, I believe Satan is highly invested in destroying God's good vision for sex, Um, that, that he's invested in tempting people to lust after one another, to prioritize their own personal pleasure over against the good of their sexual partners and any children they might produce. Um, He's invested to get people to sexually abuse one another even. Um, At the same time, the world, and let's just speak of one tiny little sliver of the world. These things are also complex, uh, but the sliver of the internet and permissive regulatory laws around it. This sliver of the world has now made it incredibly easy for anyone, including small children, to access and become essentially addicted to increasingly violent, degrading sexual images. Um, With complete anonymity and zero consequence, um, zero legal consequence or social consequence, with producers and advertisers making unfathomable unfathomable amounts of money to the tune of billions of dollars. Um, Which in turn then goes to fund ongoing sexual exploitation, degradation, and very tragically, human trafficking, human sexual trafficking. And then on top of that, pop culture serves to normalize the production and use of pornography, further enabling this cycle. And this is just a tiny cross-section of a massive issue. But an individual's isolated act of sin in a moment of loneliness uh, to engage with pornography Um, This is very real, very tragic, and fully sinful. But it's just one small cog that this person's probably uh, even unaware of that connects to this monstrous system that that oppresses millions of people. Uh, In quite literal terms, oppresses them. Um, 
So countless sins, racial partiality just as much as any other, are enabled by the devil, enabled by the broken systems and cultures of the world, and enabled by individuals and their personal sin. Um, There you go. So what now? What now? Well, in light of not only this discussion of the sin of partiality and how it works itself out uh, in, in, in God's good world, uh, as, as a massive tragedy, um, but also in light of the whole series now. This is five, five different sort of angles of discussion for, for kind of understanding and reckoning with, with our history of, of race and our present of, of race and racial injustice. Um, I, just, I have three main things I want to call us to in light of all this. First, um, it's a call to inquire, to confess, and to repent of our sins of partiality, namely our sins of racism. So first to inquire, what I mean by that is we can begin this process by searching our own hearts for where we've knowingly committed the sin of racial partiality. Um, That's A, but part B is to note that sin can also be unknown to us. Um, And we should pray like David in Psalm 139 when he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. This pleading with God to reveal what is going on in our hearts. Even the things we don't know about. And so whether the conscious or unconscious sins, when we're made aware, number two is that we confess. When we're aware, we can confess our sin both to God and to our neighbors that we've sinned against. Um, experiencing the relational restoration that God promises us when we confess to him. And then number three, um, true confession moves finally into true repentance, turning from sin and toward Christ, uh, toward faithfulness to Christ, turning toward loving God with everything and toward loving neighbor as ourselves um, from the heart first that flows out through our hands in practical acts of love. Um, We want to inquire, we want to confess, and we want to repent where we can. Uh, But number two, uh, I want to call us to recognize the unique forgiving power of the gospel. Like if you're a Christian feeling the weight of previously unexamined sin in your life, maybe over these past four or five weeks, know that the heart of the cross is the dual good news. These things are both good news. A, that, that on one hand, God is set against that sin. He is set against all sin, including the sin of racial partiality. He hates, he hates it and that he wants to destroy it because he loves people. His anger and his wrath against sin are just the flip side of the coin of his great love. They're his hatred against those which deface the people he love. Um, but on the other hand, number two, Um, That God already knows about all of your sin, past, present, and future. And because of his great love for you, has forgiven it decisively once and for all through his sacrificial death on the cross on your behalf. And in a world that is often, often graceless, especially in these conversations, we are to look to the gracious one, Jesus Christ, today. Um, and on a flip note, if you're 
you know, not a follower of Jesus. You've never trusted him and you've been listening along and you're like, oh, this is interesting. And maybe you're feeling that pang of, of, of the recognition of sin and the ways in which you've fallen short. And you've begun to, to suspect or even recognize that perhaps Jesus is the answer to that. I would invite you just to pray a simple prayer to him, which is, Jesus, I confess. Jesus, I want to repent. And I, and I believe. Will you save me? Will you help me? And if you would do that, um, email me. <laughs> I'll follow up with you. Love to love to talk you through that and celebrate that. Uh, but but that's that's number two, just to recognize the unique forgiving power of the gospel. And then finally, um, this is a call to recognize the unique reconciling power of the gospel. So listen, like the world is going to ebb and flow on how much it cares about these things. Frankly. Um, It'll push us toward healthy compassion one moment, and we can be grateful for that, but then hammer us with all kinds of unhelpful things in the next. At times, it's going to bring insights and tools that we can pick up and benefit from, but, but, but we have to recognize the limitations and the half-truths and the inadequacies of any system or solution not in step with the true creator God of the universe and his beautiful vision for ethnic unity and diversity and the reconciling grace between God and man and man and man. And frankly, the world will move on from this conversation when it's no longer trendy or beneficial to, to be in it. But for our part, uh, as Christians, we will continue our daily striving to conform our hearts and our lives to Christ in every area of life, including this one, and we'll continue to call one another to bring the fullness of the love of Christ into every relationship we have, to fight racial partiality and every other sin wherever we see them, and to strive by the power of the Spirit to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus, the one who, in the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. No one can do that except Jesus. No one can do that except Jesus. And he promises to, and it has begun and we falter and we fail. But Door of Hope Northeast, our prayer is that we would be the kind of community and we'd be growing into the kind of community over these coming weeks and months and years that is a, a, a temporal, earthly, just picture of what worship is going to be like in eternity when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around the throne singing his praise. And we're not going to do it in a tokenizing way. We're not going to do it in a forced and weird way, but we are going to strive for it nonetheless and pray for it that uh, here at Dwarf Hope Northeast, it would be as it is in heaven. Um, so that's our heart. Uh, I hope that you're excited. Uh, not just to, <laughs> certainly not to move on from this series, but to move into the future um, with hope and with anticipation of, of what God can do 
uh, through a people who are are committed to pursuing him and his heart in these matters. So uh, I love you, Door of Hope Northeast. Thank you so much for your graciousness throughout the series. And uh, we will um, continue on. And we'll be back next week with uh, the prophet Micah. So get ready for that. Okay. Thanks so much. Be well.